I'm sorry uh, if you've got uh, one of the bad seats. One of the bad seats is a seat in which you can see me. Uh, if you can't see me, uh, it's much more enjoyable, so well done. Uh, but I've been asked to come and speak on the topic uh, about... Uh, well, the, t the, the title of it is, I Achieve, Therefore I Am. I Achieve, Therefore I Am. Uh, a little bit about myself. I'm a lawyer by background, uh, but in the last few years have found myself doing a lot of speaking... Uh, in all sorts of places from universities uh, to pubs uh, on the big questions of life. And this is a big question. Uh, who am I? Is it just I achieve, therefore I am? Let me begin with a story. By the way, I'm Australian, in case you're wondering what the accent is. <laughs> so one fine day in California, it was 1967, a lady was taking a walk um, and came across a violin, apparently abandoned by the side of the road. So she picked up the violin and she took it at home and not herself being a violinist, she gave it to her nephew. Now her nephew, being a dutiful young nephew, accepted the violin but had absolutely no interest in playing it. So he put it in his cupboard and it remained there for many years. This young boy grew up, became a man, he married a lady. This lady's name was Teresa Salvato and one day Teresa discovered this violin in her husband's cupboard. She decided she wanted to play the violin. This meant she needed to go to a violin store to have the violin tuned up. Now, if someone had asked Teresa, how much is this violin worth? She would have replied that she had absolutely no idea. And the reason she had no idea was because she knew nothing about the violin. But the violin repairers quickly realized that this was no ordinary violin. This was a very special violin, so special it even had its own name. The name of this violin was a rather audacious-sounding Duke of Alcantara. That was the name of the violin, because that was the name which had been given to the violin 267 years ago by the man who created this violin, a man by the name of Stradivarius. Teresa Salvato had no idea that the violin that she had been beginning to learn to play on was a Stradivarius violin worth over a million dollars and found on the side of the road. This is a true story. If you want to know how the violin got there, come and speak to me afterwards. Uh, it's now the subject of a legal dispute, but that's not the main part of the story. <laughs> but Stradivarius violins remind us that some things in life are special. Some things in life are valuable. Some things in life require that you and I treat them with care and dignity. But what is it that makes something valuable? What is it that makes something special? And to really get to the point of our question this evening, what is it that makes you special? What makes your life significant? In a world of seven billion other people, what makes your life in particular valuable? Now, we can know the identity of a violin, or the value of a violin, based on the identity of a violin, and we can know the identity of a violin based on the origin of a violin. Could it be the same for us? If so, then our value as human beings cannot be understood without reference to our true identity, and our true identity cannot be understood without reference to our true origin. But if that's true, what happens if we lose connection with our true origin? If our true origin is indeed God, what happens if we lose connection with God? What then provides the framework for our understanding of human dignity and essential worth if 
as a society, we're increasingly removing God from the picture. Now, for the atheist who believes that there is no God and that there's nothing more to reality than a purely physical universe, then everything we are, everything we do, everything we think, everything we feel is at bottom just physical processes playing themselves out in a complex system of cause and effect. To quote renowned psychologist and atheist B.F. Skinner, man is a machine. A complex machine, of course, but in the end simply a machine. And in that respect, his behavior is completely determined in accordance with physical laws in operation. Well, one is tempted to respond to this assertion by asking why we would believe anything Skinner says if everything he thinks and does is predetermined. But if this is what he believes, and this is what a lot of people believe today, if that's true, what makes anything or anyone special? If we're all just dancing to our DNA, then that makes DNA special, but it just makes us puppets. Somehow we're no longer the main characters in the story anymore. Our DNA is. No surprise then that many young people today are growing up wondering to themselves, am I even special? Am I even significant? Have you ever wondered why we care whether our life is significant or special? Because I don't know if any of you have dogs or cats, but dogs do not seem to concern themselves with such existential worries. Why do we? Well, I think the answer is because we are significant. The answer is we are special. We want to be special because we are special. Now, our fairy stories tell us this. The Ugly Duckling, Cinderella, and the classics, Shrek 1, 2, and 3, all speak of this human longing to be somebody special. But sadly, we don't often feel that significant or that special. I actually spent the majority of my school uh, early school years stifled by this constant sense of self-consciousness and an anxiety that actually, if I was really honest with myself, I wasn't anybody special. I wasn't significant. I wasn't standing out from the crowd. I remember I worked in a supermarket for the princely sum of about $5 an hour, pushing trolleys and stacking shelves. It took a long time to make any money, but I decided that it would be a really great investment for me to spend $300 of my hard-earned cash to invest in a really cool pair of Oakley wraparound rainbow-tinted sunglasses in the belief that this would greatly enhance my coolness factor. Now, they were cool sunglasses. They were the sort of sunglasses that Australian cricketers were wearing at the time when Australian cricketers were regarded as cool. This is now questionable, and please don't mention anything about ball tampering. But let me move on. Um, but I believed, exactly as the clever advertisers wanted me to believe, that if, if significant people like these sporting greats wore these glasses, then if I wore these glasses, that would mean by a process of indisputable logic that I also too would become cool. I would be a somebody. Now, can anybody relate to what I'm talking about? Or is it just me that has experienced anxiety, uh, worrying about what other people think about me? Uh, anxiety about whether or not when people look at me, they think, wow, there's somebody special. Or when they look at me, they just keep on looking right through me. A wise person once said, don't worry about what other people are thinking about you because they're not. They're thinking about themselves. <laughs> well, that's really true. And I wish, uh, I wish someone older had pointed that truth out to me as a young man. But it really is easy to fall into 
a trap. Worrying about how people rate us on the social scale of significance. There's even a, um, a name, a technical name for this type of anxiety. It's called status anxiety. The philosopher Alain de Botton explains status anxiety like this. He says, People who hold important positions in society are commonly labelled somebodies, and everyone else we label nobodies. Somebodies are highly visible and admired. Nobodies are all but invisible. Now, one of our greatest fears as human beings is to be unseen, to be invisible. Nobody wants to be a nobody. But in a world with so many people, not everybody we reason can be a somebody. That, in essence, is the problem, that nobody wants to be a nobody, but not everybody can be a somebody. Should I say that again? <laughs> nobody wants to be a nobody, but not everybody can be a somebody. In a world of seven billion, not everyone can be a somebody. So where does that leave us? It leaves us in competition with everybody. Everybody is competing with everybody to be a somebody, to be significant, to stand out from the nameless crowd. But wouldn't you agree that everybody in competition with everybody is not the healthiest foundation for universal flourishing and human happiness? But sadly, competition is the narrative that we increasingly live by. I don't know if you've noticed this, how TV shows and movies are depicting life as a competition and others in life as the competition. Think of Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games or Frank Underwood in House of Cards or Daenerys Targaryen in Game of Thrones. For many people, these shows are accurate and insightful metaphors revealing life for what it truly is, a game with winners and losers. And as these shows graphically display, it really does not pay to be a loser in the game of life. Unsurprisingly, so many people today are growing up with a view that unless they make it to the top, they'll never be significant and they'll never be happy. And getting to the top normally means becoming wealthy, wealthy or famous or the best in one's field of study, sport, career or art. And unless we become wealthy or famous or the best in our field, we've failed at life, we've failed as a person, we are a failure. But I want to say that's the wrong narrative to live by because, well, firstly, failure is an event. Failure is not a person. You're not a failure. If you've ever been told you're a failure or you've told yourself in your heart you're a failure, that's a lie because failure is an event. Failure is not a person. To equate failing with being a failure is to make the mistake of conflating what you do with who you are. But they're not the same thing. All the best social research suggests that if we try to base our sense of self-worth and significance on external sources of achievement, such as physical appearance or success in career, study, sport, music or relationships, it's going to result in more stress, more anger, academic problems, relationship conflicts and higher levels of drug and alcohol abuse and symptoms of eating disorders. But sadly, for so many people, their life motto truly is, I achieve, therefore, I am. In other words, I am what I do. But the problem with this mindset is that if I think I am what I do, 
then my personal sense of significance will be judged on how well I feel I'm doing. But how well I feel I'm doing will inevitably be based on how well I feel I'm doing in comparison to others. And if that's the case, it becomes increasingly difficult to genuinely celebrate the success of others because I'm now in a position where my sense of significance has actually become inversely proportional to how well others around me are doing. Now, I mentioned that I worked in a supermarket in my youth. And if you ever worked in retail, you would know that a product's success has much to do with where it's placed on the shelf. According to the research, shoppers start looking at the shelf at eye level, they work from left to right, and they make their purchasing decision in fewer than eight seconds. If your product isn't one that people are choosing within that eight-second window, then retailers aren't going to bother letting that product take up valuable shelf space. And that's why suppliers want their products on the eye-level shelves, and it's why eye-level or eye-catching packaging and clever marketing of products is hugely important. So what happens to human relationships when everybody is competing with everybody for that contested shelf space, that coveted space where we're seen, recognized, valued, and chosen? What happens is we tend to treat ourselves and others as objects, comparing and evaluating each other the way we do products in the marketplace. And this tendency towards objectification or commodification of the individual has received a huge turbo boost in recent years thanks to social media technology and its shaping of society with Facebook and Instagram and Twitter becoming not just places that we socialize, but places we market our lives to others and compete for attention and acceptance. So many reports. One new report by the Royal Society for Public Health in the UK entitled Hashtag Status of Mind on how social media platforms are influencing people today has concluded that Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and Twitter have all demonstrated decidedly negative effects on our psyches. A particularly young people's overall mental health, increasing users' anxiety, depression and problems with self-identity and body image. The author of the report said these platforms draw young people in particular to compare themselves against unrealistic, largely curated, filtered and photoshopped versions of reality. Psychologist Dr. Jessica Struble observes it's creating a 24-7 constant need for impression and appearance management. It's probably only the family and the church, probably the only places in the world where person's going to learn that they're loved, not because of what they do, but because of who they are. Because they're not going to learn it on Instagram or in the school ground or at university or in the workplace. But often in family and in church, we don't get that message across loudly enough. In our, our zeal to see people we love succeed in life, we can inadvertently sound just like the message they're already receiving from the world. In other words, perform and we might see you, achieve, and we, we might love you. I think we all need God's help with this. As a, as a dad, I was so happy when a few months ago, my then four-year-old daughter, Grace, I caught her singing in her bedroom, and she didn't realize I was eavesdropping. And she has this habit of just singing whatever's on her heart. And this one particular day, this is what she was singing. And I, I won't sound nearly as good as she did, but it was like this. She said, Daddy loves me. He really loves me. 
even if I'm really, really bad, He still loves me and Jesus will always love me. And then she went, and it was beautiful. But I just thought to myself, she gets it. Her heart's received it. She's loved for who she is, not for how she behaves or what she achieves. Well, what about those small percentage of people who really do make it to the top, stand out from the crowd, achieve the sort of wealth and fame and popularity and success that makes somebody a somebody in the eyes of the crowd? Well, perhaps the biggest somebody of the 20th century was the king, Elvis Presley. Now, Elvis Presley was once asked the following question by a reporter. The reporter said, Elvis, when you first started playing music, you said you wanted to be rich, famous, and happy. You're now rich and you're now famous. Are you happy? To which Elvis replied, I am lonely as hell. And that was six weeks before he died. Marcus Person is a legend in the world of computer gaming, the creator of a popular game called Minecraft. He sold it for Microsoft for two and a half billion dollars. Yes, billion dollars. Now, months later, he wrote the following tweet. He said, I'm hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I wanted, and I've never felt more isolated. The actor Nicole Kidman said it was winning an Oscar in 2002 that made her realize how empty her life really was. As Ravi Zacharias observes, the loneliest moment in life comes when you've just experienced that which you thought would deliver the ultimate and it fails to deliver. When measured on scales of global celebrity and world influence, Jesus is probably the most significant person who's ever walked the face of this planet. Speaking once to a crowd of people, Jesus asked them the following penetrating question, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet lose their soul? Did you know that it's actually possible to gain everything in life which you thought would make you special and in the process lose the only thing in life which really does make you special, your soul? According to Jesus, the most important thing about you is not anything that can be seen from the outside. The most important thing about you is your soul. Your soul is the life center of you. And it's more valuable than the whole world. It's the only soul you will ever have and it's made for eternity, and it's made for God. And like a precious Stradivarius violin, your soul bears the image of its maker. And however invisible we may, as human beings, sometimes feel, we're never invisible to our maker, for we are, the Bible tells us, the apple of God's eye. You're neither a mistake, nor an accident, nor a failure. You're here on purpose made by God, created in His image, you bear His signature, the signature of the master craftsman. And that's the reason why superficial and transitory things like money or fame or success, though perfectly good things in and of themselves, on balance when it comes to money, I'd prefer to have some rather than not. These are perfectly fine things in and of themselves, but they do not and cannot ultimately fulfill us. They're incapable of offering that which our souls most deeply crave, which is to be fully seen and fully known and fully loved everlastingly. And I want to suggest such love as this can only be found in God.
and that it's when we lose connection with God and with the love of God that our souls get sick. And the Bible calls this sickness sin. And it's this soul sickness that causes us to compete rather than to cooperate, to objectify rather than dignify, to denigrate rather than to celebrate, to pull others down rather than lift others up, to envy and resent rather than love and respect. I want to suggest that life is not a competition to be won. It's an opportunity and a privilege to love and to be loved. That's what it's all about. This is the real music that our souls were created to play, to love and to be loved. And it all starts with receiving the love of God. Finally, we see this so clearly, I think, in an interesting encounter between Jesus and a crooked tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus was almost certainly from a religious home. His name means righteous one. But Zacchaeus was anything but righteous. He was a small man, possibly easily overlooked physically. But despite all this, by relentless determination, hard work, cleverness and cunning, Zacchaeus had found a way to become someone significant, someone special. He had fought and found a track in life that had allowed him to become very wealthy, even if it meant a little bit of cheating and corruption and using his position for his own financial advantage. As chief tax collector, Zacchaeus had worked his way to the top of his profession and he would have had lots of people working under him doing what, exactly what he told them to do. Despite all these achievements in wealth and status, there must have been something missing in his life because he went to extraordinary lengths to catch a glimpse of Jesus, even climbing a sycamore tree, climbing up a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus over a crowd as, the, as Jesus walked past. But as Jesus walked past, he didn't just keep walking past. He stopped. He looked. He saw Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus wasn't invisible to Jesus. In a dramatic moment of encounter, Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Now, Zacchaeus had worked so hard to get where he had to on the ladder of success and wealth. And here was Jesus calling him, come down, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Now, Zacchaeus at that point had a choice, a simple choice, a choice that we all face in our life to ignore Jesus or to obey Jesus. Now, Zacchaeus chose to humble himself and obey Jesus. He didn't put it off. He came down from where he was. And Jesus invited himself into Zacchaeus's house. And Jesus not only came into Zacchaeus's house, into his culture, into his family, he came into Zacchaeus's heart as well. And that was all the difference. The result was a total transformation in Zacchaeus's life. He says to Jesus, I'm going to give back half of my possessions to the poor and anyone who I've cheated, I'm going to give back four times the amount. Zacchaeus's heart was healed through encountering Jesus, no longer oriented towards the question, how can I be special? How can I achieve? How can I get ahead? Thanks be to Jesus, he now knew in the depths of his soul that he was special, that he was significant, that he was seen, recognized, valued, and chosen by God. And the song of his heart became no longer, how can I get, but how can I give? And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Salvation means freedom, soul freedom, and a relationship with Jesus that goes on 
forever. I meet a lot of people who feel that because of their imperfections and failures, God will turn away from them. But as we see in the encounter of Jesus and Zacchaeus, God loves imperfect people like me. (laughs) And instead of turning away from us, he turns towards us. He turns towards you. Jesus loves you and wants to be in a relationship with you. When Jesus called Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus didn't put it off. He came down at once. Maybe if I could finish with this gentle challenge. Like Zacchaeus, are you willing to recognize that God sees you as you are and that he still loves you? Are you willing to come down from where you are and come to Jesus? Are you willing, like Zacchaeus, to to let him come not just into your home and into your culture, but into your heart? Is God speaking to your heart right now? Do you sense him knocking on the door of your heart? The thing about God is he'll never force himself into your life. But if you're willing to open the door of your heart to Jesus, then he's willing to dwell with you by his Holy Spirit. And the question that only each one of us can answer as an individual is, are we personally willing to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior? Are we willing to experience his love and forgiveness like Zacchaeus did? Are we willing to follow him with his help all the days of his life? If you, I don't know where everyone's at, and it might be that you're not interested in all this religious garbage at all. That's completely fine. If you find that you are intrigued and interested by Jesus, I'd love to close by just reading out the words of a prayer. This is a prayer that contains very basic words, sorry, thank you, and please. And it's an example of the sort of prayer that anyone could pray who wanted to make a first step towards having a relationship with God. So as I finish by just reading out these words, if you feel that these words resonate with where you're at, then feel free in the quietness of your own space just to echo these words in your heart. And if they don't at all reflect where you're at, just feel free to let the words waft over you as maybe we'll close our eyes and just sort of respect that, that moment. So I'm just going to finish with those words of this prayer. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life and for not always acknowledging you as Lord. Thank you that you died on the cross in my place to bring me forgiveness and relationship with God that goes on forever. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit and help me to lead the life of love that you called me to. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So, uh, as promised, I hope that was close to a 20-minute talk. Uh, I don't know, I normally have a spiritual gift of going over time, um, so I may have done that. Um, but So the format is, uh, this is the talk, um, and we're going to uh, open it up for Q&A. So this is an opportunity for you to ask uh, any questions about any of the things that I said, or it might be a question that you've just had for a long time about religion, Jesus, God, church, all that sort of stuff. Um, so should we just go straight into a time of Q&A or... Yeah, okay, great. So does anyone have any questions that they would like to ask? <laughs> the one there? Yes. Hey. Hi. you probably just have to shout it out if that's all right. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> okay.
Why does there seem to be so many religions in the world that are always at conflict with each other? Yeah, great. That's my question. Great, okay, thank you. It's a really great question. Um, why do there seem to be so many religions in the world that are in conflict with each other? Um, well, uh, oh, firstly, let me say, um, I'll do Q and a question and answers, but I don't promise that any uh, answers will be good, any good. But I'll do my, uh, I'll do my best. So I just, I basically, I'll just only, I only can promise to do my best. So I think, I think it, it, so number one is, I think we're spiritual beings. Number two is there's something wrong, wrong with us. And I think these two, these two factors are at play in answering the question why there's so many religions in the world that are in conflict with each other. So first one, we're spiritual beings. So for whatever reason as human beings, and I believe the reason is because there's a God who made us and we have a soul, but for whatever reason, whatever you think the reason might be, what we cannot deny is that human beings have a propensity to worship. Uh, you look throughout the history of the world and we're always looking... Uh, beyond. We're looking for something to worship. Um, <clears throat> now, that's very difficult to explain, actually, if there is no God and there is no spiritual dimension to life. You would have to explain it as some sort of um, evolutionary, uh, there's some evolutionary reason for it. Um, but from a, from a Christian perspective, it makes all so much sense. Uh, St. Augustine said that um, our hearts are really restless until they rest in God. Um, as human beings, we'll always experience this inner restlessness, uh, this sense that, there's n that even if we have everything that this material world can offer us, we'll still be left unsatisfied. There's a spiritual longing. And from where I sit as a Christian, that's a longing that only God can meet. So, so I think the reason that there are diff lots of different religions is people are exploring, reaching out, trying to make sense of life. Why, are, why is there so much conflict? I think there's obviously something wrong with us as human beings. Uh, it's not just religious ideologies, but just about every ideology, um, human beings have the capacity to be superior, narrow-minded, intolerant of others, violent and aggressive in protecting their patch or their ideology. You see it happen in religion, uh, you see it happen in atheism, Marxism, a classic example of how things went there. So from where I sit as a Christian, it makes sense that we act like that because the Bible says that, um, that we're spiritually, morally and relationally broken. I also think that though it sounds exclusive to some, not all religions can be right. Uh, some people think these are, this is only a question of values, but actually it's a question of fact. For example, there either is a God or there isn't. Or to take another example, Jesus Christ either rose from the dead or he didn't. These are just questions of fact. Uh, what I think is important is that no one person ever pushed their views on someone else. But what I do think is important, that every, every individual must um, think and investigate for themselves as to, as to what's true. My own experience has been that Jesus Christ really works in transforming the most hate-filled heart. Let me fin finish with this example. So I have a friend by the name of Tom Tarrance. Actually, a couple of people in this room know Tom. Tom used to be 
filled with hate and bigotedness. He was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. He was actually, at one point, the most wanted man in Mississippi. He was a seriously bad guy. He was trying to blow up Jewish synagogues and all sorts of stuff. And one day, uh, Tom was arrested in a bloody shootout with the FBI in which his friend was killed and Tom was shot, but he, he amazingly survived. And Tom went to prison. And in prison, he continued to fuel the hate that was in his heart, reading books like Mein Kampf and other sort of literature like that. And one day when he had run out of everything to read, he picked up a Bible. And he says that as he read this Bible, he realized for the first time that he was a sinner in need of God's forgiveness. And he truly met God, he says, through reading the Bible in prison. Now, the FBI agent who had arrested Tom had called Tom a mad dog killer. And this hardened, seasoned FBI veteran went to see this so-called conversion of Tom. And this FBI agent, after meeting Tom and spending time with him, said, I really do now believe there is such a thing as a born-again experience. And that FBI agent actually became a Christian, and Tom and this agent became best mates. Now, I know Tom now decades later. He's in his early 70s. I can tell you he's the gentlest, humblest man you could possibly meet, and he's working towards um, fighting issues of racism in the United States, and he's just written a book about that, actually. The problem that is within us, I believe, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. We can't operate on ourselves. We need someone who can operate from without, operate within, and heal us from the inside out. And I believe only Jesus can do that. Um, and if you haven't uh, investigated Jesus, I'd say take a, take a rethink uh, in line with this. But yeah, yeah. That's, so thanks for a really good question. Any other excellent questions? <laughs> oh, any other questions? Sorry. <laughs> See, I didn't mean to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, you got another one? Oh, great. Okay. Fantastic. Yes. Yes, sir. Yeah, great. Okay, thank, thank you. So, so the question is, why are we here at all? Now, I'm going to assume that's a bigger question than why are we here at the Bengal restaurant. Uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> look, when I was, uh, I was just chatting to Tim, who I, to I met, who I met uh, here at the table, and I was just sharing a bit of my story, actually. And it was when I was 14 years old that I asked myself that same question. I grew up in a completely non-religious family background, but I hit the age of 14, and for various reasons, I started really wondering, what the heck is life all about? Why are we here at all? And I remember thinking, look, is it true that we just live for 80 or 90 years, and then we die, and then we're dust, and everything we've loved, everything we've achieved, everything we are, inevitably and eventually dissipates into nothingness? If that's true, it just doesn't feel right, uh, and it's hard to see what point my life can have, or how uh, anything how death doesn't, in the end, rob the present of any meaning that could possibly transcend the finitude of our lives. And so I'm like, trying to make sense of this. At the same time, I was being forced to sit in religious education classes. And in these RE classes, I was being told that 
hey, you're not here by accident. You're here on purpose because somebody, God, wanted you to be here. You're not an accident and you're made for relationship. Very two different, they're not the only explanations on offer, but they were the two, one, two main ones that I was confronted with at that stage. For me, that began a journey of investigation, but it was so important just to realize it really matters which story is true. Are we here by accident or are we here on purpose? Is death the final chapter or do, or do we carry on beyond the grave? Is, are all my choices essentially happening in accordance with the inexorable laws of physics and chemistry? in which case it's hard to see meaning in that if we're just a part of one big grand machine and we're a cog in the machine. Or do I really have a part of me that is spirit that can make true, free choices that transcend or semi-transcend biology? It, so I, for me, those things are important. From where I sit as a Christian, I came to, from where I sit as a Christian now, my conclusion is we're here to love and to be loved. And it all starts with receiving the love of God. I'm convinced that at the heart of this universe is not co the cold indifference of mindless atoms. At the heart of this universe is a person whom the Bible says is best described with the adjective love. And it makes sense for me of why as human beings we long for love, not just reproduction, not just physical security, but love, to be known and to be known. And I've encountered that uh, in Jesus. Uh, and that's Jesus has helped me be a better lover of other people than I would otherwise be on my own. But I'm still on the journey because I've got a long way to go. Yeah. But that's my view. Yeah. Thanks. Any other questions? Yes, sir. You just said ask a question about why there's so much suffering in the world. Yeah. So, you know, it's a big question. Yeah. Everybody wants to probably know it. Yeah. Is that because the aftermath of that is being able to show love for all that suffering? Mm. I mean... Yeah. Yeah, so the, the question is, you know, if this God is so loving and so good, why would uh, he allow so much suffering and evil in the world? Yeah? Yeah. Um, so, this is one of the hardest questions that I think any human being, any human being faces. So thank you for us. Thank you for asking it, because no, no matter who you are, whether you're a Christian, atheist, agnostic, or any other religion, just by virtue of being a human being, you have to grapple with the question of suffering. And different worldviews have different perspectives on suffering and the differences make a difference. For example, Richard Dawkins, the atheist, says, hey, look, um, there, the universe has precisely the properties that we would observe if there is a bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. In other words, from that, from that particular atheistic perspective, wolf eats lamb, lion eats zebra, zebra, strong hurts weak, and that's just where the life is. Some people get lucky, some people don't. That's kind of that. Um, some uh, worldviews view our suffering as actually just one big illusion. And if we were able to see 
uh, with enlightened eyes, we'd realize that there's no such thing as suffering. There's no such thing as other people, actually. We're all just one, and one is everything. Uh, everything is divine, and so suffering is just an illusion. Some worldviews would say, look, uh, God is just completely sovereign. We're sort of like puppets on a string, as it were. Um, and everything we, we do is happening exactly the way that uh, God, uh, or depending on the name of God and other worldviews, wants it. So that means that we don't question suffering, we just endure it, and it's our ability to endure it and submit to it rather than question it that allows God or whoever to see who is and who is not righteous on the face of the planet. Some perspectives say it's all about karma. So if you were, or, 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 or uh, you know, that can sort of play itself out in a caste system as well. So if you were born into a particular group, then that's just who you are. That's, you deserve that from a previous life. And so we really should just let people experience the karmic consequences of what they deserve. Now, Christianity, Christianity says, uh, doesn't say suffering is just natural, so go with it. It doesn't say suffering is just an illusion, so ignore it. It doesn't say suffering is just God's will, so don't question it. It, 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 it doesn't say suffering, every suffering you get is because you deserve it, so just let people suffer those consequences. It doesn't deny nor does it diminish the reality of evil and suffering in this world. In fact, it takes evil and suffering very seriously. That's why at the heart of Christianity, there's a, there's a cross. And you find that God, rather than remaining aloof from our suffering, actually entered into our world of pain and suffering and endured the most horrendous examples of human evil, torture, and execution on a cross for us, and this same God offers to journey with us. Now, there have been times where I would say, God, if I was running the show, I wouldn't allow the sort of suffering that you do in this world. And I know just rationally that if God wanted to create a world in which there were creatures like us, people who had the potential to love, because he wanted a world of love, then you need to give these people freedom to be able to choose to heal or to hurt, to love or to hate, because if, if love's not freely given, it's not really love. Love must be freely given. And we see so much of the consequences of suffering and evil in the world from human freedom. But still, as a Christian, I still find myself saying to God, but I wouldn't have allowed that particular instance of suffering, God, or that particular instance of suffering. And actually, the Bible never tells us, or, or we, we never gives us, what we, it gives us general reasons for why suffering is allowed, and you talked about one of them, and some people talk about, hey, I wouldn't trust a person who hasn't suffered. So there's definitely some, um, we grow in suffering, but there are certain instances of suffering where like, there's no way there could be any good reason for that. Where I've come to as a Christian is to say, I trust the heart of God in the midst of instances of suffering for which I personally can see no good reason for God allowing. And I've got two reasons for doing that. One is if the heart of God is truly reflected in Jesus Christ, then I know that whatever the reason that God has for allowing the suffering that he does, it's not because he doesn't love us. Because that wouldn't make sense if Jesus would die on our place on the cross and he doesn't love us. The second thing I know is that God has his resources, not just this world, but the world beyond the grave. In other words, there's a sense in which in heaven, God has the opportunity to right every wrong, redress every imbalance, and deal with the injustices that people have, have, have occurred. Maybe I'll just finish with this analogy. 
I don't know as, as if there's any dads here who've had to take their children to hospital to get immunization needles. I remember taking my daughter as an 18-month-old to get an immunization needle. And I had her in my arm. And I remember her looking up at me and thinking, wow, he's just amazing. I just tell her face, my dad's amazing. You know, that look your 18-month-old gives you. But I knew that very soon the nurse was going to come along with a needle and jab her in the arm and that she, being an 18-month-old, would be smart enough to realize that I was holding her and allowing that to happen. And what I was wondering is, what is my daughter going to think of me when she sees that I'm allowing this pain to happen to her? So as I was watching her face, she's smiling, the needle goes in, tears, face goes all red, she starts crying, she's looking at me and I'm worrying, is she going to look at me with a face that says, do you not love me anymore? But that never came across. What came across was a face that said, why? Why? Given that I know that you love me, why are you allowing this to happen? Now the reality was that she wasn't of an age that she would have been capable of even understanding the reasons that I gave to her, even though there were reasons. All she had in that moment was faith in my heart's intention towards her. But I don't think that was a blind faith. I think it was a faith based on the evidence of my love for her from the very first day of her life. My faith in Jesus in the midst of tragic suffering and circumstances is a faith based on his love for me in various situations, both most clearly expressed in the cross. There's a moving story of Dostoevsky standing before a portrait of Jesus Christ in which he made the observation, no other God has scars. No other God has scars. I think we can trust God with our lives. He's worthy of that trust and he has the scars to prove it. Yeah, yeah it's a really important question. Thank you.